0: Well, one thing was just made abundantly clear to me, and that's uh, Brother Gaddis has never heard me preach or teach. And so, <laughs> or at least maybe it's been a while. But uh, thankful for the opportunity, the uh, graciousness of our pastor to allow me to preach tonight. And uh, I was here uh, a couple of hours ago standing in this spot just so I could see what it looks like, because it's different from up here. Uh, and now it's even more different-er, because you're here, and so... Uh, But we'll get through it together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 tonight, if you'd stand with me and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and chapter number 11. Mark chapter number 11, we're going to pick up uh, in the middle of the chapter, beginning in verse 11, and uh, we'll be preaching 12 through 20. So Mark chapter 11, verse number 11, as we read through this, I want you to keep a couple things in mind. Uh, Number one. Uh, some have pointed out that what we're about to read is the only New Testament miracle that involves destruction. So, just an interesting note as we read this passage, but also as we read through here, I want you to, to see uh, Jesus' humanity and his deity. And they're, they're both here in the passage uh, as he's coming to hopefully find something and it's not there, and then as he heads into Jerusalem into the temple. And we'll see. This, uh, this wrestling or this, this uh, contrast between his humanity and his deity. So let's begin verse number 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply, if it just happens, perhaps he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever, and his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught saying unto them, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine and when even was come he went out of the city and in the morning as they passed by they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots then the passage goes on where peter draws attention to the fig tree jesus teaches about faith. But for our focus tonight, uh, we're going to focus on that tree and on the temple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time together tonight. Lord, just as I look out and see many uh, friends and people who are an encouragement to me and a challenge to me, and I know many have come from work, uh, just thank you for their faithfulness to you and to be here. Pray that you would bless them tonight. Lord, as I've been praying, as many have prayed, pray that you'd use me tonight. Uh, Lord, just that you would use your word to challenge us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The title of the message tonight is this, False Advertising. Does your life match your leaves? False Advertising. Does your life match your leaves? You know what bothers me? When the open sign is on and the business is not... Does that bother anybody else? You're driving down the road, and you see the open signs lit up all night long, but the doors are locked. Uh, it bothers me when I'm trying to find the business hours online on Google, and the hours on Google don't match the hours that they're actually open. And uh, this especially became a thing during uh, 2020 with uh, the virus, and hours were constantly changing because we all learned that viruses travel faster in the dark. And so we have to close. No, I... I know it's for staffing and safety and different things like that, but everybody was closing early. And so you didn't actually know when the store was open until you got there. And there's literally an 8 by 11 sheet of paper with somebody wrote with a Sharpie the business hours. It's like this is a multi-billion dollar company, and we've got a, a piece of paper on the door telling us when they're open. It's, it's, it's false advertising. Um, it bothers me when I order something on Amazon, and when it arrives, I quickly realize this looks nothing like the picture that I saw. Online, and I know that's a first-world problem. You know, the uh, the cool thing I ordered online doesn't look like what I thought, but I don't need it anyway. But it bothers me. Um, I, I want you to complete this slogan for me: Red Bull gives you, but it doesn't. And this actually bothered one customer so much that in 2014 they sued Red Bull and uh, Red Bull settled out of court for about $13 million. Not all of it went to the complainant. It also went to customers who had bought the drink in the past years and you could actually fill out the voucher and get $10 from Red Bull for false advertising because nobody ever got wings. (laughs) We've all probably fallen victim to false advertising at some point and in some way. But the question I want to ask tonight is, have you ever been guilty of false advertising, or are you guilty of false advertising? Our passage in the Gospel of Mark, it comes at an interesting point in the Gospel. Uh, We're only in the 11th chapter, and already Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and he's entering the temple, and this is the, the last time he's coming into Jerusalem, the last time. We're shortly after this, we're going to read about the garden. We're going to read about his arrest. We're going to read about uh, the trials. We're going to read about uh, the beatings. We're going to read about the crucifixion. We're going to be, read about the resurrection. It's all coming just in the next few chapters of Mark. But what has led up to this is a, a key point in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, I should say up front, I teach Gospels class at Heartland, so like this is my bread and butter, which is why I'm preaching this. I love this stuff. Uh, the key point in the Gospel of Mark comes in Mark chapter 8. Uh, where Peter confesses yes. that Jesus is the Christ Accessory of Philippi. It's around eight uh, thirty, somewhere in there towards the middle of chapter 8. And then after that point, that's, that's, uh, you know, Mark has 16 chapters, and we really divide it in 8 and 8 with the confession as the, as the center. You are the Christ, because after that, we have in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, we have three different times that Jesus sits down with the disciples, and he says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me but I'll be raised in three days. That's chapter 8. Okay, we go on. There's miracles. There's teaching. Chapter 9, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me, but in three days I'll be raised again. Same thing, here. miracles, healing, chapter 10. This is what's going to happen. Third time, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me, but I'm going to be raised again. What we have in chapter 11 is he's there. He's now entered the city. The triumphal entry is what begins chapter 11 as he rides the colt into the city of Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple. And he actually cases the temple, which he's checking it out. I used to work in banking, so we had to look out for people who were casing the bank, you know? So like they come in and they're like, where's the vault and where's the tellers and where's the security guard? And he goes into the temple and in verse 11, it says, when he had looked round about upon all things. And so he's taking stock of the situation in the temple, but it also says that evening was coming. It was eventide, the sun was setting. And so as Jesus often did, he would spend the day in the city of Jerusalem and then spend the night uh, in Bethany with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, perhaps staying at their house. The disciples would leave for the night. They would come in for uh, for the day. They would leave for the night. They'd come in for the day. That's why when Judas led the band of men to arrest him, they knew where he would be because he went there a lot, which was on the Mount of Olives outside of the city between Jerusalem and Bethany. And so they, he, they knew he would be there because he often resorted thither. He often slept there in the garden or he would go to Bethany. So lo- night falls, uh, they leave and then we're given a sandwich. I love a good sandwich. Um <laughs> It's one of the most practical and simple meals. Uh, While I was in Utah, I was introduced to my favorite sandwich of all time. The tomato sandwich. It's very simple. Uh, You take good bread and you toast it and you cover it in butter. Homemade bread, good. Something with seeds in it, just some quality bread. I'm not talking Wonder Bread, I'm talking quality bread, toast it, cover in butter, and then you spread mayonnaise on it. Uh, No miracle whip, that's a misnomer. It should be called abomination whip. It's only mayonnaise will work for this. And then all you do with this mayonnaise toasted bread is you just fresh garden tomato slices on it, salt, pepper, and then you put the top on. That's all it is. Bread, made it, it was an emotional day for me. It's really life changing. July and August became like holidays for me because that's when the tomatoes were in season. And the pastor I was working with, he and his wife had this garden, and they would get bumper crops of tomatoes. So they would come to church with these, bu- these laundry baskets full of tomatoes and just start handing them out to people. And so I had tomato sandwiches all the time during those months. My mouth didn't appreciate it, but the, you know, it, it'll eat you up after a while. But uh, I love those sandwiches. Actually, there's a sandwich in our text. I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, But every sandwich has three parts, right? You got the top piece of bread, the inside, and then the bottom piece of bread. And there's actually that same structure in this passage. Uh, The technical word for it, just so you know that I know it as well, is uh, is intercalation, which sounds really silly. But uh, it just means that you take something and you insert something else into it. In fact, often I've learned that medical students will intercalate a year, so they'll be doing this long, years of medical study. They'll take a year to study something that has nothing to do with medicine, just to kind of take a break in the middle of this long uh, period of study. Well, what we have here is is intercalation in a literary form. I call it sandwiching, because that's easier for me to understand, where actually our author, Mark, in the gospel, he begins a story, and then it's like he hits pause and inserts another story, and then we come back and finish the first story. And, And it's something that happens... Uh, maybe five times in the Gospel of Mark where we have this structure. And it's to help us, it's to catch our attention, and it's to help us focus on something. So Jesus curses the fig tree. Jesus cleanses the temple. And then as they leave Jerusalem, the fig tree comes back and they see it. And that's like that, that bottom piece of bread. And that's the structure of the passage here. So the temple account is inserted into the fig tree account. And so I want to ask why. Why does the gospel of Mark interrupt the fig tree with the temple? Because as pastors going to be preaching here in a while, in Matthew 21, we have this same story. I, I made sure it was okay I preached this one, but I did it right before I preached. I should have let you know earlier. But, uh, but in Mark, we have, the, we have them separate. It's the temple and the fig tree. And, it, and it's one after the other, but it's not the sandwich. It's not like it's in Matthew. It's that way. It's not like this where it is in Mark. So why does he structure it this way? Why does Jesus curse the fig tree while en route to cleansing the temple only to come back and see it? And like with everything else that Jesus did, there is a purpose. And so to see the purpose, we're first going to look at the figs, then we'll look at the temple, and then we'll look at you. Probably the only fig many of you have eaten has the last name of Newton. And for me as a kid, Fig Newtons were the treat that weren't really a treat. It's like off-brand Fruity Pebbles. Fig Newtons are like a homeschool snack. Uh, I can say that because we have five children in homeschool. It probably already shows, but I was public schooled, and so... um, Man, give me a zebra cake, give me some Oreos, give me some Girl Scout cookies. Nobody wants Fig Newtons. In fact, if you read the history of Fig Newtons, because why wouldn't you want to do that? You'd find that they were originally intended as an aid for digestion. I mean, no treat that's worth its salt cares about your digestion. But actually, I, I did buy figs once at a bulk supply, and I brought them to church. I was teaching uh, different cultural things on Wednesday night when, when we were in Utah, and I brought figs, and uh, I was I ate some, and like nobody else in the church would touch them. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but uh, I enjoyed them. Um, but figs are found in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, in fact, the first mention is all the way back in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve are hiding. And what are they using to cover themselves? The Bible says it's fig leaves. So the very first time fig leaves or figs are mentioned are to cover reality. it's It's a front that's blocking the view of what actually is going on. And in the Old Testament, you know, just a little background on figs, you'll often find this phrase, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Kind of like you see the phrase from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south. Well, here's another one. Everybody under their vine and under their fig tree. And it it just communicates prosperity and settledness. We're in the land, we're cultivating our vines, we're eating our figs. To have your own grapevine and your own fig tree was like, I mean, you've made it. This is comfort. This is great. You know, it's like having a nice car parked out in the driveway and your house paid for. It's just we're settled. Things are good. In fact, I didn't realize till recently that George Washington used that phrase under your vine and under your fig tree, I think over 50 times in his correspondence. It's one of his favorite Old Testament pictures. Uh, For our purposes, the most important thing to know about figs in the Old Testament is that they often represented God's chosen people, the Jews. One passage to reference is Jeremiah 24. Uh, where it talks about good figs and naughty figs or evil figs. And it's talking about Jerusalem, or it's talking about Israel. So Israel's relationship with God in the Old Testament is pictured in many different ways father, son, groom, bride, also owner, and fig tree. And so that's one of those pictures. The problem with the fig tree in Mark 11 is that it looks good, but there's no fruit. There is the appearance of life, but there's no substance. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on uh, if there should have been figs, or if there would have been figs, or if there will be figs. I'm not a horticulturalist, and I don't even know if I'm using that word right. But the reason that this account is included is simple. Jesus thought he may find figs to eat, but he didn't. That's what it says in verse number 13. Seen a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. It just, perhaps it's going to have figs. They're passing by, maybe there's going to be something there. Uh, again, we see the humanity of Jesus here. As he's passing this tree, he's hungry. He's, he wants something to eat. It's in the morning, they're walking to Jerusalem. He says, maybe there are figs here. Outwardly from a distance, the fig tree looked good, but behind the leaves, there was no life. And so we can say this way, that the fig tree was guilty of false advertising. It was like the open sign was illuminated, but the doors were locked. There's nothing behind the leaves, no substance. There's nothing there that's going to benefit anybody. There's no life. So Jesus talks to the tree. You were more like Jesus than you knew, because that pretty much vindicates you talking to your computer, and you talking to your car, and everything else that's not doing what you want it to do. Jesus talks to the tree. He says to it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And, and it's an important note right after that, his disciples heard it. So we, we kind of get the sense, it's, the Bible's letting us know this was more than just about the fig tree. Right, right. It's actually supposed to help somebody learn something and his disciples heard it. Yeah. They, <laughs> can you imagine overhearing Jesus talking to a tree? But that's, that's what happened. He talks to the tree And the disciples heard it. And then it's like the curtain closes on the first scene. It's done. Now, verse 13, they come to Jerusalem and we get to the next part to help us understand what's going on with this fig tree. I want to reference, although we don't have to turn there to Luke 13, where there's a parable that Jesus gives about a certain man who has a fig tree. And he comes back year after year putting effort into this fig tree to try to get it to produce something, and it doesn't. And he says, why cumbereth it the ground? Let's get rid of this thing. And the man working for him says, well, let's give it a little bit more time. Let's give it another year and see if it will produce anything. And so in Luke 13, we have a parable where you're supposed to learn through your ear from this parable of the fig tree that's not producing. What we have in Mark 11, it kind of like it's a parable for the eyes. Just as those who have ears to hear were supposed to learn from the parable in Luke 13 about the fig tree, those who have eyes to see are supposed to learn from this account in Mark 11. It's, he's teaching them something deeper than just about a fig tree, but they've got to catch it. It's, it's a parable for the eyes, in a sense. That's, that's often what the nature miracles serve as. And that brings us to the meat of the sandwich, the temple. Uh, I don't think we need to do too much work on the temple to show that the temple was the center of Israel's religious activity. Uh, You know, real briefly, Solomon built the temple in the 900s, but it was destroyed around 586 BC by Babylon. Seventy years of captivity. Zerubbabel, their group comes out under Cyrus, king of Persia. The temple is rebuilt around 516, or at least it begins to be rebuilt around that time. And Herod the Great before our passage, back at the birth of Jesus, he had expanded the temple uh, to be even larger than it was before. In fact, the Herod's temple, the second temple, was supposed to be even greater than Solomon's, at least in size and splendor. Herod was the ruler of the Jews, but he was not Jewish. He was an Edomian or an Edomite or a descendant of Esau. And so he would build things for the people in order to gain their favor. And uh, if you've If you're a parent, you know what it is to try to gain the favor by providing things for your children and you want them to appreciate you. And that's basically what he's doing. They don't accept him as the king because he's not Jewish. So he built things for them. He would build an arena. He would build uh, a bathhouse. He would build a water system. He would build things for them. And building the temple even greater was one of the things that he offered them. And so by the time we come to Jesus cleansing the temple, we're in this magnificent building that's a lot bigger than the tabernacle in the wilderness back in the Old Testament, it's actually made up of layers. And we have the temple proper, holy place, holy of holies. Only the high priest can go into the holy holies, only once a year on the day of atonement, only to sprinkle blood. But then there's the holy place, which is where they do some other work. And then there's the courtyard around that, where the priests do uh, offerings, different things like that. But, so that, that's the temple, basically. But then we have more layers. We have another layer right outside of that. It's like peeling back an onion. We get to the next layer, and this is where ceremonially pure Jewish males can go this close, but not to where the priests go. They can go this close. Well, then we've got another layer back. This is where Jewish women can go. Now, they can't go to where the ceremonially clean Jewish males can, and they can't go to where the priests can, but it's another layer. But then we've got the outermost layer, and we call that the court of the Gentiles. That's where you and I can go. We, we can get that close. And that's the place. That, that's the place where all this activity is going on. In that court of the Gentiles, that outermost layer. Three things real quick about their misuse of the temple. The court of the Gentiles was being used as a shortcut to carry goods into the city. Um, it would be like if you took a spare tire from the south lot. And wanted to get to the north lot, so you rolled it through the sanctuary. probably not the best thing to do. You should probably go around, but they were using this court of the Gentiles, this outer area as a thoroughfare, to carry things through, which is why he, at the end of ver- or in verse 16, would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple because that 's what they were doing. They were carrying things through this place, disrupting what was supposed to be taking place. Number two there were temple taxes to be paid and there were temple money offerings and they had to be made in the right currency, the right currency. And with people coming from different places, they would often exchange their money at the temple to make sure they had the right currency, probably the Tyrian shekel. So we, which had Tiberius Caesar's image on it. So we have these money changers that have moved into the court of the Gentiles and that's where they're exchanging their currency you, you come to give your temple tax from a different place, you have a different currency, well, you can exchange it here. But the problem is that the people were being taken advantage of by the money changers. The exchange rate in the temple was outrageous compared to outside. And so they were making merchandise of God's people. Lastly, not only were they carrying things through and, and not honoring the area, not only were they making profit on the exchange, but lastly... Uh, Animals are being sacrificed. I mean, it is the time of the Passover and before an animal can be offered, it had to be inspected by the priest to make sure it was acceptable. Often animals bought from home uh, were rejected or animals purchased outside the temple were rejected in order to drive business to those who sold animals in the temple in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And, and the, the, the animals in there, they were like USDA certified, you know. These are the pre-inspected offerings. The, the lamb that you raised at home, and, and you're bringing it with you, and it's, in your eyes it's, it's the best you have, they say it's not good enough. But we've got one in there you can buy. Never mind the fact that it costs a lot more than your average lamb, but you can buy that one and offer that one. It's, it's, a, it's a pre-made offering ready for you. So you can imagine a man leading his lamb to Jerusalem from a distant city for the Passover. When he arrives at the temple, there's a lot of business taking place, a lot of commotion. He's told his lamb is not good enough, so he has to buy another lamb to offer. He's told the exchange rate for the Tyrian shekel has gone up since last year and it will cost him more. And all of this is taking place in the temple in an area where people of all nations are supposed to come and seek God. But they can't because of the busyness and because of the merchandising and the commotion taking place. I I tried to think of a very solemn uh, occasion here at church. And first thing came to mind was the Lord's Supper on the Tuesday night before Resurrection Sunday. And I imagine it would be like showing up on that Tuesday night and the first thing on the schedule is a bake sale pie auction for the youth. Now, we're here to observe the Lord's Supper, but we've got people passing out money. We've got pies up here. There's youth running down. And then uh, we have um, some announcements that are made about upcoming activities. And then there's a plea from the church for more money. That's going to make it difficult for us to contemplate. It's going to make it difficult for us to observe and to pray. And that's kind of the, the picture that we have here in the temple As all of this is taking place, it's supposed to be a place for Gentiles to come and pray and seek the Lord, but they can't because of the commotion. And so just like the fig tree represents Israel, so the temple represents Israel. And the temple is not Israel, just like our building is not us, but the temple represents Israel. And when Jesus cleanses the temple, it's a message of judgment against the people. And we don't want to miss the picture here. Just like the fig tree looked like it had something to offer and there was nothing but a show, so the temple looks like it has something to offer, but it's just a show. There's no substance. There's nothing life-giving taking place there. In spite of all the busyness at the temple, there is no life there. And Jesus sees through the leaves. And Jesus sees through the busyness. And the one whose eyes are as a flame of fire sees through the show and calls them out for what they really are. False advertisers. All show and no go. And it's shown again, you can't fool Jesus. He knows. And this account... Is recorded so that we can see the true condition of Israel at the time of Christ. And like the fig tree withers, so the temple will be destroyed shortly after this in 70 AD. But the passage is here for more than just to teach us about a fig tree and just to teach us about the temple. Actually, the passage is here as a confrontation to each one of us. Because just as Jesus saw through the leaves and judged rightly, And just as he saw through the busyness and judged rightly, Jesus still sees things clearly today. We've been making our way through the letters to the seven churches in Sunday school, uh, Revelation 2 and 3. And each letter begins with a statement where Jesus says, I know thy works. Now, I've been fooled. You know, I've misjudged people. A lot of my responsibility in the dean's office has to do with making judgment calls on things. Is this sincere? Is this real? Is this being put on? And I'm, I'm trying to make judgment calls. And I've often misjudged or misread or gotten it wrong. You understand, Jesus has never misjudged anything. When he says, I know thy works, that's fact. He knows. Nothing's hidden from him. He says, I know thy works. No one has ever fooled the all-knowing one. He's never misjudged a situation. No church has ever fooled the all-seeing one. And so as a church, I want to ask this. Could we be found guilty of false advertising? Do we present ourselves as a place of life, but in reality it's just a show? There's, there's a danger here that we can slide into. And I, I don't, you know... I'm a member here. We've been here 13 years. I I don't sense that at all. There is life here. But you can see how it would happen. You can see how there would be a danger of getting so busy with the work of ministry that we forget to love God's way. The music is right. The clothes are right. The temperature is right. Most of the time, the preaching is right. The schedule is right. The buses are right. The classes are right. The fellowship is right. Great. Is there life there? I'm glad to say Like I said, I don't believe the church is a show here, but it's a danger and it's a possibility that churches can fall into. I want to ask you this. As a disciple, we'll bring it a little closer home. Are you guilty of false advertising? Do you claim to follow Jesus, but behind the leaves where people can't see, you're not really? Do you claim to be a follower, but in reality, you're a tree without fruit? Is your walk with God pretend or pretense? Are you more concerned about looking spiritual than being spiritual? Who are you when no one else is around? Do you put on a front for your roommates and teachers? Are you a different person at church than you are at work or at home? Is your concern that people think highly of you? I'm asking tonight, is there life behind the suit? Or is it just a show? Are you advertising that you're a follower of Jesus but you're not really? And you know it. And he knows it. Because he judges rightly. As a person who claims to be saved will bring it even down another level. Are you guilty of false advertising? Is your spiritual life just a show? And I, I, I want to cover this because this is something I even wrestled with as a young man where I had made a profession of faith as a young man and wrestled with it for about seven years Um, growing up I uh, I was a people pleaser you know I wanted to make people like me and I wanted to make people happy and so I just did what was right because it made it easier for my parents like that was my mindset I was a good kid because that made life easy for me and that made life easy for them and I didn't want to cause problems for them and so I was just a good kid but being a good kid is not the same thing as being saved, and and so I, I went through that for a long time, wrestling with this. I'm a good person. I'm a leader in the youth group. I do all these things. I serve at the church. I help out. But I knew it was all just leaves. It was all just a show. It wasn't until 1999 at Camp Kobiak when the preacher is preaching on the reality of hell. And he said, You know who's going to be there? Sinners are going to be there. Yeah, sinners are going to be there. Adulterers are going to be there. Yeah, they're going to be there. You know, murderers are going to be there. Of course, they're going to be here. Uh, good people who never trusted Christ are going to be there. Oh, <laughs> that was me. And I humbled myself and asked Christ to save me that night. But I, I know what it is to look the part. But inside, God was witnessing to me, it's not there. There's no figs. There's no life. There's no life behind the leaves. So I want to ask you tonight, does your possession match your profession? Do you have what you say you have? Or is it just a show? Does your life match your leaves? Because God sees through the clutter of life to the heart of the matter, And it's a good thing tonight that if the reality of your life isn't what it appears to be from the outside, you can repent. This is not a message of condemnation. It's a message of grace. You can do something about it. It would be more appropriate to say you can let him do something about it. You can come to him and he can change you from the inside out. And he wants to. He wants to. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you for uh, this passage that you've allowed us to consider. Lord, just thinking about the two pictures that we're presented with here, the, the tree with leaves but no fruit, the temple with busyness but no life. Lord, it could be that there's an area of our lives that would be similar to that. Lord, I don't know the need of each person, but I know that you do, and I pray that you would speak to their hearts tonight. Lord, I know that you're ready and desiring to work in a life. And that if we'll come to you in repentance, you want to do that work. So I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.